Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. At some point, I don't know if you saw this, I really don't think I saw it until last year, around this time when this song was playing. It probably was before that, uh, but it came to my attention that people were sort of jumping on the bandwagon of criticizing this song from a theological perspective, actually making fun of it. Their point being, of course, that, of course Mary knew. She knew all these things. She didn't just wake up one day pregnant with Jesus with no idea of how it happened. She had a visit from the angel. She had, a, she had prophecies spoken over, and we're going to look at some of those here in a little bit. People dismiss Mary, did you know, as mansplaining. You ever hear that? Have you seen this? Have you seen some of these? There's parodies of this song, more than one. Uh, saying that this was mansplaining what they claim was obvious to Mary, with the most, uh, perhaps the most inspired rendition being a verse added to the song that says this, and forgive me, these are not my words. Mary freaking knew that her baby boy would one day rule the nations. Mary freaking knew that her baby boy was Lord of all creation. Yes, she knew. Read Luke 1, you fool. She sang about it then. It helps if when you're reading, you listen to the women. Not, that's not, this, I'm trying to do that because like, that's a verse of the song. It helps if when you're reading, you listen to the women. That's how it ends, okay? And it's funny. This isn't meant as a slam against Mary or the Bible. It's just they're making fun of the song saying, look, all this stuff was told to her. So yeah, she knew it. But did she? I want to spend some time this morning trying to figure out exactly what Mary actually knew. And first of all, we don't know a whole lot about Mary, her background. She was a good Jewish girl, looks like, right? And we don't even know her age. Uh, according to the culture of the times, most scholars agree she was probably uh, 15 or 16, possibly even younger. Uh, we may have some idea of her lineage. There are actually two genealogies, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and they are different. Uh, they split off after David, uh, but they trace uh, Jesus' lineage back uh, through a certain bloodline, of course, <laughs> the lineage of David. They all trace him back to David, and one goes back to Abraham, and one goes back to Adam. But there's a difference, and one of those, there's, there's three pretty good explanations for why those genealogies are different. It's not something to trip over. It's not an error. Uh, but one of those lineages may be, may in fact be Mary's uh, lineage rather than Joseph's. The main thing is that she was a common Jew. She wasn't, as far as we know, connected to the ruling class of this, uh, you know, with the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. It's important to remember that at this point in Israel, they were actively looking for not just waiting for the Messiah, the one who was pro prophesied in the Old Testament, which was the only Bible they had back then. We don't even know if Mary was literate. Uh, so what she knew of the Messiah, what she knew of the Bible, their Bible and the Torah, the, the Torah was what she had been told, what she'd been taught, what she could remember uh, by, her, you know, by her parents, the rabbis, the priests. And this is something that I usually point out around Easter, the time was right. 
the fullness of time had come according to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. I'm not going to read that today, but you can go back and read that when, when Daniel talks about 70 weeks are appointed for your people. And this, this, this countdown would start, where's Canfield when I need him to help me out? The, the, the countdown started, I think, when the wall was built, uh, after the return, after the captivity. And then you could count, you could just do the math. This number of years is going to pass, and then Messiah will be cut off. So you go from the building of the wall to the crucifixion, and then you kind of, there's some wiggle room about, all right, when, he, when is he going to appear before he's cut off? But they knew the time was about right. They didn't know the day, they didn't know the hour, but they knew it was time for Messiah to be there. Do you remember uh, after the resurrection, after the ascension, in fact, when the after and after Pentecost and the, and the, uh, the apostles and uh, and the early church were turning the world up, upside down, and the Sanhedrin, the council, tried to to uh, rein them in, and they threatened them. And Gamaliel gave this advice. He said, "Leave these men alone, because do you remember uh, a while back?" And he names two guys who were uh, making uh, who presented themselves apparently as the Messiah. One named Thutis and one named Judas. Uh, and they got some followers. And he says, and both these guys came to nothing. He says, so if, these, if this is that, if Jesus turns out to be nothing, this movement will come to nothing. The worst thing we can do is give them publicity, even by persecuting them. But if they are of God, we don't want to be found opposing them. My, my point in bringing that up is, the reason a guy like Thutis or Judas and who knows however many others were able to get a following is because this, this didn't happen in a vacuum. They were making these decisions and these plans based on the fact that they lived in a moment where the atmosphere was ripe for people to believe. People are looking for a Messiah, I'll give them one. Maybe they were fakes, maybe they were self-deluded, maybe they had so much passion that they felt, I must be the one God is raising up to be the Messiah. But it worked because of the time. All that to say, well, let's, let's read a little bit. How about we go to the Word for a minute. In Luke, uh, we read that the angel Gabriel appeared to her. Let's look, starting in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this would, I contend, again, keep in mind Mary was young. But I still think that these words from Gabriel would have made sense to her in the context of what she understood about the Messiah. The promised Messiah. And, it, and like we can't account for, we have no way of knowing how many Jews were actually paying that close attention. But 
I, I can kind of compare it to, you know, when I became a Christian, it was pretty much into, it was just a, a matter of a year or two before I realized we were in a moment, I look back, it's clearer to see, that, that uh, and this was the late 70s, mid to late 70s and early 80s, where uh, people who were excited about their Christianity were very much focused on the return of Christ. And there were Christians who didn't know a word of Scripture about the end times, and even non-believers who were familiar with terms like the second coming, the rapture, the tribulation, end of days. Hollywood makes movies about this stuff without invoking Scripture at all. But this was sort of the atmosphere of the time. There, I mean, it, was, it really was a potent... Most of you, uh, have, if, you've, if you've been uh, a, a believer as long as I have, uh, you can remember that. If you've been around as long as I have, you can remember that, that there was just this real sense of he could come back any moment. In fact, he probably will. I didn't expect to be here that long. I've told this story before. It's, it's, it's embarrassing to look at. The day that my junior class was scheduled to take the ACT, I didn't sign up to take it because I didn't want to waste a Saturday taking the ACT because I was convinced Jesus was coming back in 1981. So, where, where exactly Mary was on that, on that expectation scale, how actively she was looking. But she was familiar enough with the terminology that when Gabriel gave her these details, she, it was pretty clear that what he was talking about was, you're going to be giving birth to the Messiah. But notice, he didn't say anything in there about the blind are going to see. He's going to walk on water. Didn't say anything about him being God himself. And my point, of course, isn't to dissect what really is an excellent song, after all. My point is that it looks to me very much like Mary understood that this baby was going to be the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of Israel. Uh, but with practically everyone else, she had specific ideas about what exactly the Messiah would do when he got there. Let's look at another miraculous birth before we come back to that. This was about the same time, a little before, John the Baptist. John's parents were Zacharias and Elizabeth. And they served God. They walked uh, upright before him. And, uh, but, and they were also older and childless. Zacharias was a priest serving in a temple, kind of on a shift basis, for about two weeks at a time. He was on a rotation there. Uh, and th at this point, he was, uh, his job was to burn incense in the temple. And while he was doing that, the angel Gabriel appeared before him and told him his prayers had been heard and he was going to have a son. He and Elizabeth would have a son. Told him to name him John. Told him he would be a forerunner of the Christ. Later on, after John was born, Zacharias prophesied over him. And this is what he said, among other things. I'm gonna, you can read along in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 71. And these, these are, uh, this is the Spirit speaking through John, uh, that we should be, uh, sorry, speaking through Zacharias about John the Baptist, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. 
He's talking here about the Messiah. He goes on to speak specifically of John's role in preparing the way for the Messiah. But notice the two references about being saved from our enemies, delivered from our enemies. That was the focus. This was the common theme, the common hope and understanding of the prophesied Messiah. We just want to live before God as we are called to do according to the word, and we can't because of these lousy Romans. It's always been somebody. And the Messiah is going to come and change things so that we can do this without the oppression of our enemies. That's why the cross was such a letdown for Jesus' followers when it happened. I'm going to come back to this passage in a bit because I skipped something very significant about both Zacharias and Mary. But first, I want to look at a few more things about Mary and her understanding of Jesus. When Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary uh, resided in Nazareth. That was their hometown, but they had to journey to Bethlehem to comply with a census. Uh, and I'm sure this was a major inconvenience, as we've all heard, we've seen it dramatized. But this was to fulfill a prophecy that said specifically that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we have the birth itself, along with the angels appearing to the shepherds. And I'm not focusing on that today, uh, but look at what happened when the shepherds went to visit Jesus. Said, so, and they came in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's in Luke 2. Also, they had to flee to Egypt after living in Bethlehem for a couple of years. Remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the wise men came, the, the magi, even though you see the, the, uh, the creches, the, the, the nativity scenes with the wise men uh, standing there with the shepherds. They, visit, they didn't visit him in the manger. No, most of you know that. They came to a house he was living in, in Bethlehem. And, you know, they came to Jerusalem, and the, the scribes told him, well, the, he's, he's to be born in Bethlehem. They went there, and then they, they had to flee to Egypt uh, because the Holy Spirit warned them that Herod was going to send people there trying to destroy the child. That was an inconvenience too, but, but this fulfilled another prophecy, that out of Egypt I have called my son. When they returned, instead of returning to Bethlehem, they returned to Nazareth, which fulfilled another prophecy, that he shall be called a Nazarene. But when they went to Bethlehem, when they went to Egypt, and when they moved back to Nazareth, all three of those things, it tells us clearly in Scripture that this was done, that the prophecies might be fulfilled, but they didn't know they were doing that because of that. It wasn't like they were reading the instruction manual, okay, now we've got to go to Egypt because the prophecy says, out of Egypt I have called my son, and when we move back, even though we've got a nice place there in Bethlehem now, let's go back to Nazareth so we can fill this prof prophecy. They were just doing what made sense because of the circumstances of that time, and more importantly, at the specific direction of the Holy Spirit but it fulfilled prophecy. Back to Bethlehem. They took Jesus uh, to be circumcised. And then they took him to the temple to be dedicated. And we had this beautiful encounter with Simeon. You remember that, right? He took Jesus in his arms and he said in Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 29, Lord, 
now you are letting your servant depart in peace. This is really cool because Simeon was an older man too, and it had been revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he saw with his own eyes the Messiah. So you talk about somebody who knew it had to be soon. <laughs> he was well advanced in years. And now when he holds Jesus, they just took him to be dedicated. They didn't take him and say, Simeon, here's the Messiah you've been looking for. This, this guy was there. And he takes the baby, uh, Jesus, and he says, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now that last part, what were they thinking when they heard that? Do you think that was immediately clear to Mary? Oh, he must be talking about when he's grown, he'll be nailed to a cross for the sins of the world. I, we know, we know looking back exactly what Simeon was talking about. Mary heard that, and I, I think she and Joseph were like, oh. He said some things that confirm what we know about Jesus. He's the Messiah, but what's this? The fall and rise of many in Israel? What's this about of bringing a light to the Gentiles. And then Anna, the prophetess, gave thanks for him. And then we fast forward to age 12 when Jesus was with his parents in Jerusalem for Passover. And they, uh, you know, remember how this went? They go and they celebrate. They go and they're traveling in a large extended family group and they're coming back home. And they're, after three days of traveling, they realize Jesus isn't with us. We thought he was with some other family members. So they go back to Jerusalem and where do they find him? They find him in the temple, conversing and studying with the leaders there. Uh, well, read this in, in beginning, and uh, this is still Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. They, his family, saw him. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement in which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, just like it says she did when the shepherds came and said, Here's what the angels told us. We just had this encounter. And so she pondered these things in her heart. She pondered these things in her heart. Quickly, quickly. Because this is the part that threw me. We're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 3. Now, there's a difficulty reading through the Gospels that maybe you have noticed. Uh, of course, um, I'm, I'm firmly of the conviction, after all my years of reading the Bible and studying the Bible and being taught the Bible, that anything that looks like a flat-out contradiction in the Bible can be resolved. If it looks like a contradiction, it only looks like a contradiction. And I don't believe the Gospels contradict each other at all. But there are some things that seem, uh, there seem to be some conflictions. And a lot of those, those conflicts uh, boil down to chronology. Well, 
Mark said this happened first. Luke said this happened first. And really, uh, the bottom line is we're getting different perspectives. Um, I've heard somebody describe it's like, it's like four witnesses to a car accident. You know, depending on where you're standing and how far away you were, you might notice certain things differently. You might notice details that somebody on the other side of the street didn't notice. Or depending on who you talked to, something was more important to somebody else who's telling these stories. They weren't really hung up on what order things happened in. But by the time we get to what I'm going to read here, Jesus, I just need you to understand that Jesus' ministry was already established, okay? By this time, he had performed many healing miracles. He had turned water into wine, and we know that Mary was right there for that, said that this was the first of the signs that he performed. And he had already chosen uh, 12 of his followers to be apostles, to be his inner circle there. And he attracted crowds of people everywhere he went because they knew that he was healing people and casting out demons. And look at this. We're in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Mark 3, 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as, as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. Now, a couple things that are super important here. Where it says his own people, that's talking about his family. Some translations just say that. Some of the better translations say, when his family came. And this included his mother, as we'll see here in a few more verses. And what kind of endorsement is this? The scribes, the religious expert, their conclusion is, looks like he's casting out demons, but I think it's because he's got a demon himself. It's by the power of demons that he's casting out demons. And here's his family's defense. He's not demonized. He's just crazy. He's out of his mind. What are they doing? Now, Jesus responds by speaking to his followers. He explains about how a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Therefore, he's not casting out demons by the power of demons. He talks about the unpardonable sin and blas of blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of it, here, still in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, when we read this, we usually focus on Jesus' response here. This is my family, everyone who does the will of God. I just want to point out that his family, including Mary, were there as he ministered, and they were trying to rescue him from what they apparently perceived as the wrong road. What were they thinking? You should be gathering an army by this time. You should be aligning yourself with the priests and the scribes and the ruling Jewish authorities. Instead, here you are serving the sick and the demonized, and you're antagonizing the ones who you should be making allies out of. You see? 
I've shared this before, and I share it from the bottom of my heart. People talk about, you know, listen, I'm glad to live in the, time, in the age and the place that I live. I, I think there's no better place to be a grown man than in the United States of America at this time. We have a lot of conveniences, a lot of comforts, but there would have been something special, wouldn't there, about being, being there in Judea when Jesus walked the earth? Wouldn't that have been something? But I got to be super honest I really think my biggest fear about that, my biggest risk, would be I would probably have found myself, I would have been at least high risk of falling in line with the Pharisees. There's just enough of a legalistic streak in me to think when the Pharisees, you know, when you, when you look at the, how many times did Jesus heal on the Sabbath when it looks like he's just doing that to needle the Pharisees? Can, and we look at the Pharisees, and it's easy to dismiss them because we know how wrong most of them were when it came right down to it. Again, with hindsight. But at the time, it's like they were trying to make room. It's like, Jesus, we're not saying you're not the Messiah. We're not saying you're evil. And we're not saying you can't heal. But could you, there are six other days to do it. Why do it on the Sabbath and, just, and give people something to get irritated about? I can sympathize with that. So here they are, you know, we hear Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and they're all these, all these bad guys, but they were the religious authorities at that time. Mary and Joseph and the family, Mary certainly uh, understood that Jesus is the Messiah. So obviously, if he's going to lead Israel into freedom from Rome and lead them to a place where they can openly worship, it's going to have to happen with the help, with the alliance of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council, the Sanhedrin. And what's he doing? He is spending all his time serving. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mary, did you even know? No, she didn't. She couldn't comprehend. Not much more than anyone else at that time, anyone else who was looking for the Messiah. But God told her enough to equip her to accomplish his purpose in her. Even if she didn't understand how all this was going to happen, she knew enough to do what God called her to do. Let's go back to Luke 1 for a second. I'm going to close with two observations and applications. I'm not done. I'm just telling you I'm getting to the part that really matters to you and me. When Zacharias was burning incense in the temple, Gabriel appeared and told him what? He says, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. You and Elizabeth are going to have a son. You're going to name him John and all this other stuff. But then look at this in Luke chapter 1, verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. Now I've heard it preached that the angel shut his mouth at this time to keep him from speaking doubt and unbelief during the pregnancy of Elizabeth. And I think there's something to that. 
I really do. But my goodness, all he did was ask a question, right? Does this seem a little harsh? But what was the question? He didn't say, how will this happen? But how will I know this? It sounds like a subtle difference, but it's significant. I kind of like the way the message version puts this. It says, do you expect me to believe that? You expect me to believe this? This is very similar to Abraham and Sarah. Remember, you see the, the similarities, don't you? Here's Abraham and Sarah, well advanced in years, and God appears and says, uh, the, you're, you're going to have a, a child. And what's Sarah's response? She laughed. Oh, really? At this age? They didn't suffer any consequences for that. They suffered consequences from trying to take the matter into their own hands, and that's a whole other sermon, of course. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it for a second. Keep that in mind and look down a few verses when the angel appears to Mary. He greets her, as we read earlier, tells her she's going to bear a child, as we read earlier, and in Luke 1, uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 34, but Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Almost sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Same angel, Gabriel. Very similar message. Two miraculous births, albeit one certainly more miraculous than the other. And both of them questioned the angel. Mary's question was, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Why didn't the angel shut Mary's mouth? Why react so harshly to Zachariah's question? I asked Beth this just last night. What do you think about that? She didn't even hesitate. She said, Zacharias was a priest and not a novice. More was expected of him. Zacharias should have known better. Mary was 16, probably uneducated. Zacharias was a man of God. He walked uprightly. God didn't look down at Zacharias and see him walking down the street. He wasn't out there fishing or doing something else. He was in there serving the Lord as he did regularly. And again, not, not, not only just a, not a novice, he was well advanced in years. He'd been doing this from the time he was old and from the time he became a man. He's standing there serving God, and an angel appears to him. What's, what's the point of that? What's the application for you and me? The more we grow in grace, the more we mature in the faith, the more we have been given to know and understand, then the more that's expected of us. God is abounding in patience and mercy. The angel didn't strike Zacharias dead for his question. He just shut his mouth. You as a leader of God's people, if you're going to speak without thinking, just don't speak for a while. You're an educated, God-serving, experienced priest, and an angel just appeared to you, and now you say, do you expect me to believe this? Really, how can I know this was not... He wasn't asking about the technique. Can you tell me how this is going to happen? That's what Mary asked, by the way. How is this going to happen? She didn't say, how, prove it to me. She said, can you explain how this is going to happen because I'm not pregnant and I can't be pregnant because I've never slept with a man. He says, ah, good question. The Holy Spirit's going to come on, come on you. The pregnancy itself is going to be a miracle. 
That's why it's going to be, he's going to be called the Son of the Most High. Zacharias says, I need some proof. And the angel's like, an angel standing in your presence. Manifestly, this isn't an idea that popped into your head. What more proof do you need? You should know better, Zacharias. Zip it for six months. Nine months, however long it was. So he said, I was thinking the six months is that's when uh, Gabriel appeared to Mary. Anyway, it's not a matter for us, I believe. Again, he didn't strike Zacharias down. He shut his mouth. And we don't need to worry, I think, that God is going to strike us down as much as this. Do you want to be used by God or not? You should. He has a plan for you. And when he reveals that plan, what are you going to do? How clear does it need to be before you step out in faith and do the things he's called you to do? We'll get there. We're, I'm going to make that a little more clear here in just a second. If you want to serve God, if you want to be used of God, there's a time to put away childish things. There's a time to distinguish yourself as a man or woman of God who handles the word of truth skillfully and accurately. There's a time to watch your mouth, Zacharias. The angel continues explaining to Mary uh, in Luke chapter 1. It says this in verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold the Lord's bondservant. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is absolute gold. She had a word from God and simply said, whatever he wants, I want. Now, there are people, and there's no shortage of them. We talked about this. We talk about it often when it comes to things we're praying for, like healing or provision. We say, well, there are some, we don't say this, but there are plenty of people who do. The only safe prayer, the only prayer that God will answer 100% of the time is, thy will be done. And it sounds so pious. It sounds so humble. Let it be done to me according to your will. And the implication there is whatever your will is. I don't know it, but you, don't, but you do. And as long as I pray this prayer, I can trust that anything that's happening to me is your will. But that's not what Mary said, is it? We can certainly pray. Listen. That, that's the wrong take on let it be done to me according to your word. Jesus said, what did Jesus say? Let it be done to you according to what? What? Your faith. We don't, if we say, let it be done to me according to your will, and Jesus says, let it be done to you according to your faith, that's great when both his will and our faith are focused on the same thing, right? Where does faith begin? Where the will of God is known. Did Mary know God's will? Yes. Mary, did you know? There's a lot of things she didn't know. She knew God's will. How did she know? The angel just told it to her. She wasn't acquiescing to some vague promise or mindset. She was responding to a specific promise. Can we do that? We can certainly pray, may it be done to me according to your will. 
But it makes a huge, huge difference when we say that, knowing what his will is. That's why Mary said, may it be done to me according to your word. She wasn't saying whatever. She's saying, I heard the word, let that be done to me. We read through these early gospel chapters and ask, Mary, did you know? She knew he was to be called the Son of God. But did she understand that he was God the Son? Did she understand the concept of the Trinity? Probably not. She knew he was the Messiah. Did she know that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Probably not. There was a lot Mary didn't know as a teenage mom. But she knew enough to submit herself to God's will and to walk in what she did know. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. And because she was willing to do that, more knowledge was revealed to her. More revelation was received. And what did she do with it? Until she knew what to do with it, until she understood it, what did she do? Pondered it in her heart, treasured it in her heart. Did it pay off? Yes, it did. We don't have any evidence that Mary or Jesus' brothers were disciples of his before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, we absolutely do. Mary is mentioned there in the company of the disciples many times. Uh, Jude wrote a book. James wrote a book. These were Jesus' half-brothers. They were Joseph and Mary's children. Because she was willing to submit herself to the word of God that she knew, to the will of God that she knew, she was given more to understand. She grew in knowledge and came to saving faith in her son, God's son, just like everyone else who needed and received salvation. That's an important difference, by the way, between us and, other, and certain other traditions, primarily the Roman Catholic Church. And this, I'm not up here Catholic bashing. I really do believe that while there are some beliefs that I can't reconcile with the Word of God, there are genuine believers in the Catholic Church. But to venerate Mary as they do, they're very careful to say they don't worship Mary. Uh, but they, they will say, we offer prayers to Mary because she has special access to Jesus, who has, a, who has their son's ear better than a mother. So we offer our prayers to Mary so she can lean on Jesus to answer our prayers. She's more sympathetic to us than he does. What's the problem with that? Well, the scripture tells us there's only one mediator between God and man. And so I think because of our reaction against what looks like sometimes idolatry to us, we want to downplay the significance of Mary entirely. Well, there's, there's, there's a balance there. When, when Mary sang the Magnificat, she said something. And sometimes when we sing it, I've heard it sung, uh, the part where it says, uh, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit exalts in God my Savior, for he has looked with mercy on my lowliness and his name will be forever exalted. What she sang was, and my name will be forever exalted. Those were her words. And she was right. Doesn't mean, she's not saying, I'm going to be God, I'm going to be considered the mother of God and people will pray to me. What's she saying? Was she exalted? Was her name exalted? Absolutely. Everybody knows her name. It's like when Paul said, in order, uh, well, I was given this thorn in the flesh to keep me from being exalted. We read that, well, God didn't want me proud. No, this exaltation means he was going to be, everybody knows who Paul was. 
He was extraordinary. The demons knew his name. He was exalted. Is God in the exalting business? What did he say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you in due season. He's all about that. Exalted, memorialized, held up as an example. These are good things, and Mary was all of that. But she needed a Savior just as much as every man and woman who ever lived. But because she was humble, because she didn't walk the earth, go ahead and stand up with me. She didn't walk around saying, know who I am, right? Yeah, he's Jesus, the son of God, but I'm his mom. So uh, how about a little respect? She walked in humility. She walked and fulfilled her role in this divine plan. And her role was extraordinary. And if she could walk in humility, can we? And it starts with this. Let it be done to me according to your word. What is God's will for you in the grand scheme of things? What were you created for? Right now I'm not just talking about the job he has for you to do during the few years that we walk this earth. He created you primarily for a relationship with him. We are to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Eternity is real. Every one of us has been cut off from that promise, the promise of eternal presence with God because of the sin we were born with. But what is God's will? He tells us in his word that he gave his life as a ransom for many. This was the whole point of Jesus coming, to bear your sin, to bear my sin, to bear the judgment on that sin so that we could be reconciled to God. We don't have to go to him as I did. I've told this many times over the years, but not super recently. When I was little, I knew enough to know that there was a God, there was a devil, there was a heaven, there was a hell, there was a Jesus, that there was an eternity, but I didn't know that I could know where I was going. So I would pray, please, 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 let me go to heaven when I die. And what I was thinking, and it wasn't a matter of humility, it was a matter of fear, was, but you're going to send me where you want. And I don't know where you want me. But now I do, because he makes it clear. God's not willing that any should perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Paul spells it out this way in Romans chapter uh, 10. That if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here's God's word and God's will. He wants to save you. He wants you born again. He wants you to be his child. And all you have to do is believe and confess. What's your will? What's your response? Are you going to call on his name? If you haven't personally called on his name and claimed that salvation and looked at that word and said, let that be done to me according to your word. Not send me to hell or take me to heaven. It's up to you. I'd prefer heaven, but it's up to you. It's, ah, I see. You want me in heaven. That's why Jesus died. That's why you gave him in the first place. That's what Christmas is all about and Easter. Let, it, let that be done to me according to your word. Do you want to make that claim today? Now's your opportunity. 
I'm going to pray, and when I'm done praying, they're going to sing, and when they start singing, come up here and let me pray with you if you want to make that decision today. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the witness of Mary. Thank you for her obedience and the example she gives us in your word, and thank you for spelling that out to us, Lord, and giving us such a wonderful picture of walking in the knowledge and the light that we have. Let it be done to us, Lord, according to your word. And let us not be lazy about seeing that word and applying it to our own lives and making those decisions and growing in faith and growing in grace. It's now my prayer, Lord God, and I join my prayer and my faith with every believer in this room that if there is anybody in this room that has not, anybody in the sound of my voice who has not made that decision to yield their lives to you, to surrender their lives and their will to you, that you would convict them of their need convince them that this is your plan for them and grant them the wisdom, the boldness, and the humility to come and receive that gift of eternal life today. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.